Hey, good morning. We guys stand up, join us. Come on in. Let's worship our Savior together. together and we declare uh, through song and we declare um, just together who God is. We declare three things. We declare he is the, we declare he is our, and we declare he is my. He is the almighty God. He is the king of kings, the Lord of lords, the uh, ruler of all things. And, and our, the word tells us that uh, for any who call on him and those who believe in his name, he gave right to be called children of God. And so we can call him our father. 
But the greatest thing that we can do is call him my Savior. Amen? Personally, God has come to us in his son, Jesus Christ. And so as we continue to sing and as we declare these things this morning and as we talk about the rest of Esther and talk about the great reversal and see what God, our Father, the Almighty God, our Father, has done to give us my Savior. Let's continue to worship Him and let's declare that truth this morning so that if there's anyone in here that can't, that they see a people who, who do and see that God has come near to them too and that they too can call Him and become His child and declare Jesus as my Savior. Amen? Amen.
and his sacrifice for us. You've sealed us with your spirit. You've given us your word. You've, you've poured out good and precious gifts and great promises to us. Lord, we thank you for that, and we love you, and we praise you. It's all in the name of Jesus. Amen. Amen. You can have a seat. Good morning, Crosspoint family. First uh, Thessalonians 5.11 charges us as God's people to encourage one another and build one another up. And so our desire, my prayer, is that on Sunday mornings that we would take this God-given opportunity uh, to be together, that not only would the Word encourage us and build one another up, but, but we would take opportunities to not just greet one another warmly or uh, check on one another, but we would take this opportunity to encourage one another, use our words to build one another up as God's people as we gather together. And I pray that as we open up our Bibles, we are strengthened in our faith this morning. Our First Impression team volunteers are going to begin uh, passing out the connection card booklets now. And so if you're new with us for the first time, fill out that gray section. If you're with us uh, been here for a long time, you can fill out the top and let us know you're here. A few next steps that I want to draw your attention to. Community groups are starting back up here for the spring semester. So if you're not connected to a group, mark community group box, mark that box there, and Pastor Eric will be in contact with you this week to try to connect you to one. Our next Discover Crosspoint, our membership class is happening uh, in February. The dates are in your, uh, in your program. They're Tuesday, February 21st. Child care is being offered. And so if that's the next step for you, I would encourage you to mark membership there, mark uh, Discover Crosspoint. Since September, we've had over 100 people uh, go through that. And so we would encourage you to uh, be involved in the next one here in February. And then if there's a way we can be praying for you, please let us know that. Write that at the bottom. And as elders, as staff, we'd love to be praying for you. Last Sunday, I shared with you that we were changing up the program a little bit. We were removing attendance and offering from the weekly program, instead doing that on a quarterly basis and sharing some of those things. And instead, in place of that in the program, sharing evidences of God's grace. Uh, Pastor Eric put it well this last week in our staff meeting. He said, things that lead us to thanksgiving, things that lead us to say, thank you, God, for your work, and may you continue to do your work. And so I want to draw your attention to that uh, this week, last week. What's written in there? Last week, we had five Crosspoint households express a desire and willingness to serve in our Sun Chasers children's ministry. One household is going to help set up and tear down. Others are going to help care for and serve the youngest of Crosspointers in our nursery. So we're grateful to see their desire to serve wholeheartedly. So if you've been serving for a long time around Crosspoint, or if you're just jumping in, we are grateful for your willingness to be the body of Christ, to be an active hand or foot or uh, mouthpiece in uh, the body of Christ. As a church, our vision calls us to be uh, driven to reach people, to go and make disciples. That mission to go outward is one we play out regionally or locally in central Illinois and one we play out globally. And so this morning we want to draw, our draw your attention to our work with Compassion International. Watch this video. As we look back on the year 2016, let's think about the things that truly matter. Because this year, because of you, together we were able to do so much for the kingdom. This year, because of you and your willingness to fight poverty, over 1.9 million children are being released from poverty in Jesus' name. So that means because of you, your sponsored child is learning that poverty doesn't define them that Jesus loves and cares for them, that there is hope. Your sponsored child now knows that there is someone in the world who loves them, someone who wants the best for them, and someone who wants them to know Jesus. Simply put, in 2016, you changed the life of your sponsored child. And we're so thankful for your commitment to fight poverty in Jesus' name. This year, you gave hope, you gave love, you gave Jesus. Thank you. All right, good morning. Uh, we, just, we did want to thank you guys for our sponsorship that we have. We have eight total of kids that we, uh, we sponsor back in the back through Sun Chasers. So we wanted to uh, put a face with the names of all of them. We're not going to name through all of them, even though they pretty much do every week back in the back. We kind of go through the names, and the child stays with the grade, 
which is really cool. So as the kids grow up, they kind of walk through all of the children that we've had. So it's, it's kind of a good process to kind of go through so we can think of others throughout the time. So we wanted to uh, bring these up here and have you show and see all the kids. We're going to say a quick prayer for them. But I, I also just want to thank you guys for enabling your children to bring the uh, bring money back as we take an offering for their son chasers and uh, this it all goes to uh, our compassion kids so thank you for enabling your kids to be able to to do that and to learn how to do that and to think of other kids too so let's just say a quick prayer for these then these guys can get back to the back so dear God thank you so much for compassion ministry thank you for the the work that they do in changing all of these kids lives and we we just thank you for all of the children that are represented here that we're able to to do your work and, and uh, give these, these gifts so that uh, your work can go forth in these lives and in the lives of the families of these kids and the uh, neighborhoods of these kids and all, all of the villages and everything that's represented here. Lord, we thank you for your work that goes out through Compassion International. In your name we pray, amen. Thanks, guys. I'd encourage you, if you have uh, kids back there, to ask your kids about uh, their compassion kid. Ask them who their name is and where they live and those kind of things and engage with them in conversation on the way home today. So Jesus calls us in Acts 1.8 that as God's people, we would be his witnesses. Uh, he says, from Jerusalem to Judea to Samaria to the ends of the earth. So you have this uh, from the neighborhoods to the nations, cross-culturally, uh, regionally. You see all those aspects there of his commission to us. And so we see that globally, ends of the earth to uh, Compassion International. But then we also want to draw our attention to uh, something that's happening regionally this morning with a new church plant that is launching in Flanagan, Illinois. Flanagan is, uh, if you've never been to the big city of Flanagan, it's uh, 30 minutes uh, northeast of here. And so uh, as a they, there's a new church, Flanagan Community Church, love the name, uh, that is beginning today. They're launching, this is their first Sunday. Over the past several months, myself and several other pastors, kind of along Route 24, uh, so to speak, have been gathering to pray and talk about what church planting looks like in small towns because it's not just the suburbs or the large cities that need a vibrant church, but it's also the small communities that need a gospel-preaching, Jesus-exalting, uh, great commission-minded church. And so we are thrilled that um, God's birthed up this church in Flanagan to launch today. Um, they are a church, Flanagan Community Church is a church affiliated with the Fellowship of Evangelical Churches, which is a group of 60, 70 plus Midwest churches, several of which are around here in Central Illinois, Eureka Bible, Great Oaks and Metamora, uh, Grace and Morton, Northwoods and Peoria, those kind of churches. And so we're excited for them, and we wanna, uh, I want to share with you a couple things that we've been able to serve them in as a church. We've been able to give them our children's ministry curriculum, our gospel project stuff that we've been in, they're going to be using. Uh, we were able to give them a couple pieces of furniture for their nursery, and then we're also out of our missions fund going to give them $1,000 kind of over the next six months. And so more importantly than those things, I would charge you to be praying for them. Uh, because many of you were around here when Crosspoint first started. Back in a storefront, there in a storefront, um, back when the sanctuary held maybe 100, 125 people, their sanctuary holds about 70, 75. And so uh, I want to pause to pray for them this morning, and I want to charge you to continue to pray for them uh, as they do ministry here in 2017, reaching people in Flanagan, in the outside areas there with the gospel. All right? Father God, thank you so much for Pastor Dan and a launch team, uh, a group of believers that are willing to step out in faith and willing to follow your call to start a new church in an area that needs a new church, in an area that, uh, that needs a gospel presence. Father God, thank you for their willingness to walk and live by faith. I pray that you would abundantly bless them as they plant, as they water, as they reach out. I pray that you would cause the growth. I pray that lives would be changed household by household, that people would be reached, people would be equipped, people would be discipled, and then they'd be sent out, whether it's to a workplace or whether it's to a nation.
Father, thank you for the kingdom. Thank you that uh, local churches are built on you and not on us. And thank you for what, what we see in the large body of Christ and in the, in the big C church of your work that's happening, whether it's through Compassion Kids or through a local church being started. I pray that you give them unity. I pray that you give them um, just a joy and a surrender as they follow you, as they trust in you. Give them an endurance, Lord. Help them not to grow weary. But know, according to Galatians 6, that at the proper time, a harvest will happen. And so we love you, Jesus. We love what you're doing there. We pray that your hand would be at work in gracious, powerful ways. In Jesus' name, amen. If you have a Bible with you, get to the book of Esther. Uh, we were there last week, so if you missed that week, I'd encourage you to listen online or watch on our YouTube channel. Uh, if you don't own a good Bible, please get a free one at Guest Connections. Afterwards, take that home with you. We'd love for you to be reading that. In the story of Esther, what we don't see is the name of God mentioned. It's the only book in the Bible that doesn't mention the name of God. But what we do see and what's true in all 66 books in the Bible is that we see God at work. We see the providential hand of God at work in the lives of the people who trust in Him. And that work often happens behind the scenes. And one hope I have for us as we look at this book, as we look at this book is that the Lord would help us see that not only is He at work in the book of Esther, but He is at work in our lives here in 2017. We may not always see the supernatural sign or wonder or the parting of the Red Sea, but neither did Esther. Instead, what they saw was God orchestrating events to occur that would lead to the salvation of people and the glory of God. We'll see that in the chapters that we look at today. We saw it last week, and I, I pray that that would remind us of His work in our lives, that we would be a watchful people that would not miss the grace of God and evidences of that grace in our lives. Grace that exposes sin, that grace that draws us to Himself, grace that draws us closer to one another, and then grace that sends us out and helps us, creates opportunities to show and tell of the good news to people around us. What we'll see in Esther is God bringing about a great reversal in the circumstances that we saw from last week. And we've seen that throughout the Old Testament in this three-year journey, right? For instance, the Israelites are backed up against the Red Sea. The Egyptians are bearing down on them. And at just the right time, God intervenes. The Red Sea parts and the Israelites escape and the Egyptians are completely defeated. If there's one thing we've seen in the Old Testament and a truth that's carried out into the New Testament, it is that God loves to work in seemingly impossible situations. A couple years ago, I did one of my favorite teaching series I've ever done. We called it, But God. And it was, we looked at that phrase throughout Scripture. Different times it comes up. And when that phrase shows up, it's, it's like this great reversal occurs. The, the text is reading along. For instance, a, a worldwide flood had occurred, and, and God judged all those who, who had rejected him. But God remembered Noah in Genesis 8. Joseph had been sold into slavery by his brothers, left for dead, thrown into jail, accused of wrong he did not do. But then you read in Genesis 50 when he's speaking to these brothers who tried to kill him, you intended to harm me, but God intended it for good to accomplish what is now being done, the saving of many lives. Or Psalm 73 the psalmist is lamenting about before the Lord of all that he seems to be wrong in this world. How the wicked seem to prosper and they don't seem to suffer and those who love and trust in the Lord seem to suffer and they seem to not prosper. And yet he prays in verse 26, my flesh and my heart may fail, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. Or Acts 2, Jesus died on the cross, but God raised him from the dead. Peter preaches. Or Romans, we were powerless in our sin, but God demonstrates his own love for us in this, that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. For those of us who are in Christ, we've all got this great reversal to our stories, right? To our lives, our testimonies. We've got this moment or this season in our past where we remember God working and drawing us to himself and us repenting and turning toward the Lord. We were going one way, 
away from God, and God reached in and He rescued. He called us to Himself to turn around and to believe in Him and His good news. And we began walking in a new direction. We've all got this great reversal as part of our stories, and we probably got little small reversals too along the way too, right? For some of you here, you have yet to experience that great reversal, and I pray that you do today. I pray you'd grasp the truth and love of our God and understand the mercy and grace that has been demonstrated for you through the cross of Christ. I pray you'd place your faith and trust in Him completely today and begin walking in a new direction. So if you missed last week, here's a quick recap of the context of the story of Esther. In chapter 3, a guy named Haman, who hates the Israelites, he gets the king to sign this order that would have all the Jews annihilated and destroyed. And then in chapter 4, what we looked at last week was we saw the beginning of how the Israelites are going to respond to that new law. Specifically, we saw how two Jews, Mordecai and Esther, respond. We saw a faithful response. God had placed them into leadership roles in the Persian Empire. Esther was the queen, but that doesn't mean that, that didn't mean she had any clout or any authority with the king. She didn't have any authority to go to the king and say, what you're doing here is wrong, or this new law to kill all the Jews is wrong. Instead, what the Persian law said was that to approach the king uninvited means that she'll die. And so Mordecai poses this great question to Esther. He reminds her that being a Jew, she's not going to escape this death. Even if she's part of the king's palace, even if she's the queen, it means she's still going to die according to this law. And so he poses this great question, he says, and who knows whether you have not come to the kingdom for such a time as this. Esther, do you see the providence of God at work in your life? Do you see how you've been uniquely placed into this position of influence? Do you see how God is at work here? And then Esther calls the people to pray and fast for her, and she walks in faith. And chapter 4 finishes with this line from Esther. She says, then I will go to the king, Though it, is, though it is against the law, and if I perish, I perish. And we left it off at that last Sunday, and I had a friend tell me afterwards, so you're going to tell us what happened? And I said, well, I'll tell you next Sunday. And he goes, well, I'm going to have to read my Bible this week. And I was like, ha-ha, see? See how that worked? I got you. Like a bait and switch. It was like, oh, Pastor Hart just blossoming. with. Oh, he's got to read his Bible this week. Fantastic. So I hope that you already know the answer. That'd be great. Or the videos that we've been posting on Facebook, I hope you already know the answer, and this is simply review for you. Um, and so last week, the emphasis was on will Mordecai and Esther trust God no matter what? Will they trust Him even when they don't uh, see Him necessarily? And then today, what we see is the faithfulness of God on display in their life. And again, we'll see God working behind the scenes, and we'll see God at work as they walk by faith. We'll see God at work as they walk by faith. So the situations in chapter 3 and 4 is desperate. The Jews are set to be annihilated. It's a seemingly impossible situation, but this is where the but God shows up. Even though we won't see the name of God, we will see his hand at work bringing about this great reversal of circumstances. So today I want to follow the story from chapters 5 through 9. And all along, we'll see God at work, which will remind us of His work in our lives. And we'll also see the story foreshadow or point to the cross and point to the good news of Jesus, which again is a good reminder for us as we look at the story and the great reversal that has happened because of Christ. So we left off with Esther saying, I will go to the king, though it is against the law, and if I perish, I perish. And then chapter 5, verse 1, On the third day, Esther put on her royal robes, and stood in the inner court of the king's palace, in front of the king's quarters, while the king was sitting on his royal throne inside the throne room, opposite the entrance to the palace. And when the king saw Queen Esther standing in the court, she won favor in his sight, and he held out to Esther the golden scepter that was in his hand. Then Esther approached and touched the tip of the scepter. So right there, we see God at work. She's won favor in his sight. And he receives her. He's wa she is walking by faith here. She could have easily died right here and been killed. But God is opening up a door. We see God at work here. And the king said to her, What is it, Queen Esther? What is your request? It shall be given you even to the half of my kingdom. Again, God is throwing up open the doors for her. 
And Esther said, If it please the king, let the king and Haman come today to a feast that I prepared for the king. Then the king said, Bring Haman quickly so that we may do as Esther has asked. So the king and Haman came to the feast that Esther had prepared. And as they were drinking wine after the feast, the king said to Esther, What is your wish? It shall be granted you. And what is your request? Even to the half of my kingdom it shall be fulfilled. Then Esther answered, My, my wish and my request is, If I found favor in the sight of the king, and if it please the king to grant my wish and fulfill my request, let the king and Haman come to the feast that I will prepare for them, and tomorrow I will do as the king has said. So she's showing some great tact here, some great ability to navigate this. She's not just blurting out, here's what I want, but she's saying, I'll tell you tomorrow. Come to another feast, and I'll tell you tomorrow. She puts off telling him and Haman until this next banquet. And then chapter 5 finishes with Haman seeing Mordecai, being filled with wrath toward him, and agrees with the counsel of others, including his own wife, that Mordecai should be executed and commits to asking the king tomorrow for Mordecai's death. And the way in which Haman desires to see Mordecai killed is to be this great public spectacle. He asks for gallows to be made for Mordecai's death. And a gallow was this. It wasn't necessarily a hanging. It was a pointed stake up in the ground. So imagine like a telephone pole that's been sharpened at the top like a, like a wiener roast stick, if you will, uh, to not sound too uh, gruesome. And so it would be bent down. The person would be pierced literally through the middle of them and then be hung up in the middle of the, in the, middle of the city. This gallow was 75 feet up in the air. So he wanted a very humiliating uh, spectacle for Mordecai. It shows the, the wickedness of Haman. It shows his wrath toward Mordecai in this moment. So we see the enemy is still lurking in the story, still trying to kill and destroy, and yet we'll see that God is greater. And God's plans for a reversal to happen will not be hindered. And then we get to chapter 6, and it begins with, On that night the king could not sleep. Again, this is evidence of God's work here. He just happens to have a sleepless night. These are not coincidences. And when you can't sleep, you read, right? Or you check your phone, which is not going to help you go back to bed. Um, but So you begin to read. Well, the king, he's the king, so he's not going to read, but he's going to ask someone to read for him. And he gave orders to bring the book of Memorial Deeds, the Chronicles, and they were read before the king. So what more exciting material to put yourself to bed than history, than a history book of all the chronicles and things like that. And it just so happened, if you read that, it just so happened that they open to the page, they read the story of Mordecai revealing the assassination attempt that was to be uh, to take the king's life. How Mordecai uncovers this assassination plot. And the king asks the reader there, what honor or distinction has been bestowed on Mordecai for this? The king's young men who attended him said, nothing has been done for him. And the king said, who is in the court? Now Haman had just entered the outer court of the king's palace to speak to the king about having Mordecai hanged on the gallows that he had prepared for him. And the king's young men told him, Haman is there standing in the court. And the king said, let him come in. So we see this unfolding, right? Haman is there to do what? He's there to ask the king for Mordecai's death on the giant gallow. And yet the king is thinking about Mordecai and how we need to honor him and how we failed to honor him for this great work that he has done. Chapter 6, verse 6. So Haman came in and the king said to him, What should be done to the man whom the king delights to honor? And Haman said to himself, whom would the king delight to honor more than me? And Haman said to the king, for the, for the man whom the king delights to honor, let royal robes be brought, which the king has worn, and the horse that the king has ridden, and on whose head a royal crown is set. And let the robes and the horse be handed over to one of the king's most noble officials. Let them dress the man whom the king delights to honor, and let them lead him on the horse through the square of the city, proclaiming before him, thus shall it be done to the man whom the king delights to honor. Proverbs 16, 18 says, Pride goes before destruction, 
a haughty spirit before a fall, or your KJV, pride goeth before a fall, right? And here comes the fall. Then the king said to Haman, hurry, take the robes and the horse as you have said, and do so to Mordecai the Jew, who sits at the king's gate. Leave out nothing that you have mentioned. So Haman took the robe took the robes and the horse, and he dressed Mordecai and led him through the city, the square of the city, proclaiming before him, thus shall it be done to the man whom the king delights to honor. This is utter humiliation for Haman. He wanted Mordecai dead, and now he's leading him through the city, proclaiming the honor of Mordecai. In a matter of a night, in a matter of a restless, sleepless night, a great reversal happens. And it's a reversal that Jesus spoke of in the Gospels. He said this in Luke 14, 11, For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, and he who humbles himself will be exalted. The kingdom of God is upside down from the kingdom of this world. Hype is currently doing a series looking through the Sermon on the Mount and Jesus' words in Matthew 5, 6, and 7. And John called it uh, upside down or living life on the narrow road. And that's the reality of what it is to be a Christ follower. It's living upside down from the way of this world. The world says exalt yourself. Make yourself look great. Make sure, make sure you're number one. Make sure you're on top. And Jesus says life is found in humility instead. That if you humble yourself, that in the end, God will exalt and lift you up, not for the praise of you or me, but for the praise of our God. James 4.10 says, Humble yourselves before the Lord and he will exalt you. Humility's hard, right? It's hard to consider the needs of others greater than, your own, greater than your own. It's hard to choose to be quick to listen and slow to speak and, and hold back that verbal barrage you want to unleash on your spouse, your kid, your coworker, your boss, your friend. It's humbling to admit and confess your sin and ask others, I need prayer. I need help. I can't do this on my own. That's humbling. So humbling's hard, but humbling is good for your soul. It's good for your heart. It's good for you in the end, is according to Jesus' words. So let his words, let his promise here about humility, that if we humble ourselves, that in the end it leads to exaltation. If we exalt ourselves, if we beat our chest, if we say, look at me, what about me, that in the end we will be humbled. That's what we see happening here with Haman and Mordecai. So we jump to chapter 7 now, and this feast that Esther had invited the king and Haman to is happening. The king tells Esther again, whatever you wish, it shall be granted to you. And then in verse 3 in Esther 7, Queen Esther answered, If I have found favor in your sight, O king, and if it please the king, let my life be granted me for my wish and my people for my request. For we have been sold... I and my people to be destroyed, to be killed, and to be annihilated. So she reveals herself as a Jew right there. If we had been sold merely as slaves, men and women, I would have been silent, for my affliction is not to be compared with the loss of the king. So, so he's reminding the king about the practical matters of this, that if we all die, then you might as well have had us as slaves if you're going to kill all of us. And then King Ahasuerus said to Queen Esther, who is he and where is he who has dared to do this? Who messed with my woman? And Esther said, a foe and enemy, this wicked Haman. Haman's there, right? He's at this dinner. Then Haman was terrified before the king and the queen. See, Haman thought he had all the power, the control, and now he's terrified because this reversal has occurred. And he is the one now under condemnation. He is now under the judgment of, of the king. His wickedness has been exposed to the light of truth. Verse 7 then. And the king arose in his wrath from the wine drinking, which probably didn't help the wrath, and went into the palace garden. But Haman stayed to beg for his life from Queen Esther, for he saw that harm was determined against him by the king. And the king returned from the palace garden to the place where they were drinking wine, as Haman was falling on the couch where Esther was. And the king said, Will he even assault the queen in my presence, in my own house? As the word left the mouth of the king, they covered Haman's face, 
Then Harbona, one of the eunuchs in attendance on the king, said, Moreover, the gallows that Haman has prepared for Mordecai, whose words saved the king, is standing at Haman's house fifty cubits high. And the king said, Hang him on that. So they hanged Haman on the gallows that he had prepared for Mordecai. Then the wrath of the king abated. So Haman dies and the wrath of the king subsides. Haman intended for this judgment to be done toward the Israelites. But in the end, God turns the tables here completely and now judgment is upon Haman. Listen to these words from Psalm 7, 14 through 16. The psalmist says, Behold, the wicked man conceives evil and is pregnant with mischief and gives birth to lies. He makes a pit, digging it out, and falls into the hole that he has made. His mischief returns upon his own head and on his own skull his violence descends. This is the reality of what Haman is experiencing, except instead of a pit, he's 75 feet up in the air. Chapter 8, verse 1 then, on that day, King Ahasuerus gave to Queen Esther the house of Haman, the enemy of the Jews. And Mordecai came before the king, for Esther had told, uh, for Esther had told what he was to her, so that were relatives, were both Jews, and the king took off his signet ring, which he had taken from Haman, and gave it to Mordecai. And Esther set Mordecai over the house of Haman. So I would encourage you this week, whether it's in community group or in your household, read chapter 3 and read chapter 8 and compare those two. Because they draw this contrast, this comparison of, for instance, uh, the king gave the signet ring to, Mo- to, uh, to Haman in chapter 3. In chapter 8, it goes to Mordecai. So you constantly see this reversal between 3 and 8. So Mordecai is placed into a position of leadership here. But that law to destroy the Jews, it's still in place. It's still in effect. That law can't be revoked according to Persian uh, rules. That law stands. So how will the Jews then be saved? Well, what you read of in chapter 8 is that Mordecai and Esther then are given the authority by the king to write a new law that allows for God's people to defend themselves. It was by the king's authority that this new law is written that they're able to uh, not only defend themselves but go and attack those who would attack them. Notice how Mordecai and Esther never took the law into their own hands. They prayed, they fasted, they acted in faith, and God was at work in all of those little details. And in the end, this great reversal occurred, but it was not by their own authority. It was by the king's authority. And so the king allows for the Jews who were in every city to gather and defend themselves, to destroy and to kill and to annihilate any armed force of any people who would come to attack the Israelites. It's the exact reversal of what was laid out in chapter 3. Now judgment is upon the evil ones and the Israelites will be saved because a new law has been written. And we pick it up then in verse 15 in chapter 8. Then Mordecai went out from the presence of the king in royal robes of blue and white with a great golden crown and a robe of, of fine linen and purple and the city of Susa shouted and rejoiced The Jews had light and and gladness and joy and honor in every province and in every city, wherever the king's command and his edict reached, there was gladness and joy among the Jews, a feast and a holiday. See, this great reversal leads to gladness and joy and gratitude. Salvation for the people have come. And so where there was mourning in chapter 4 and, and, and ashes and sackcloth and grieving as a result of Haman's wickedness, now there's gladness and joy because Esther has intervened. Because she and Mordecai walked and lived by faith despite not knowing exactly how it was going to play out. And then we get to chapter 9 and we see this completion of the reversal take place. So the Jews were set to be killed on this day, on this date of the calendar, Chapter 3, you can read that. In chapter 9, you see that exact reversal take place. God intervenes at just the right time. The but God moment takes place. Verses 1 and 2 in chapter 9. Now in the twelfth month, which is the month of Adar, on the thirteenth day of the same, when the king's command and edict were about to be carried out, on the very day when the enemies of the Jews hoped to gain the mastery over them, the reverse occurred. The Jews gained mastery over those who hated them. 
The Jews gathered in their cities throughout all the provinces of King Ahasuerus to lay hands on those who sought their harm, and no one could stand against them, for the fear of them had fallen on all the peoples. So we have seen God's hand quietly at work through various circumstances to bring about this great reversal in the book of Esther. I hope it reminds us that the same God who is at work there is also at work in our lives and in the life of this church. I also hope that in this story we see these foreshadowing moments, this how it points us to the cross and the good news of Jesus Christ. Here are just a few observations. Haman's desires to kill and destroy the Jews, to steal all their stuff. Esther and Mordecai's desires that the Israelites would have life. Jesus said in John 10.10, 10, the thief comes only to steal and kill and destroy. I have come that they may have life and have it abundantly. See, our spiritual enemy to this day has one goal, and that is to see the lives of those that God has created destroyed by our own sin. Jesus has come so that we might have life abundantly, so that we might experience freedom from sin and joy everlasting. You also see at just the right time, God had Esther and Mordecai intervene in order to save the Jews. Paul tells us in Romans 5, you see at just the right time, when we were still powerless, Christ died for the, for the ungodly. Very rarely will anyone die for a righteous person, though for a good person someone might possibly dare to die. But God demonstrates his own love for us in this. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. And just as Esther and Mordecai's, their intervention here led to gladness and joy and celebrations, so Jesus dying for us while we were still sinners, it should lead to our joy and our gladness and our delight and our celebration, and our worship, and our thanksgiving. Haman thought his wicked plan was perfect to overcome the Jews. But all the while, God was simply orchestrating events and situations that would not lead to Mordecai's humiliation, but that would lead to Haman's. In the same way, our spiritual enemy thought that by getting the crowds to, to crucify Jesus, it would lead to the ending of God's providential plan for the salvation and the redemption of people. Instead, the cross was not the greatest defeat, but it was the greatest victory. Listen to what Paul says in Colossians 2, 13 through 15. You were dead because of your sins and because your sinful nature was not yet cut away. Then God made you alive with Christ, for he forgave all our sins. He canceled the record of the charges against us and took it away by nailing it to the cross. In this way, he disarmed the spiritual rulers and authorities. He shamed them publicly by his victory over them on the cross. So the cross was not defeat, it was victory. Just like there was a uh, law that said all the Israelites must die, so all of us, when compared to the perfect law of God, are under judgment. God is righteous. And so he does not revoke that righteousness. He does not revoke the law that would reveal our sin. He does not pull back on his justice because that would be compromising to his character. But what he does is he fulfills justice by allowing his perfect son to die on our behalf. So as Romans 3.26 tells us that he is both the just and the justifier. So it didn't relinquished the previous law of his holiness and his righteousness. Instead, he gave a new law. He gave a son in our place who obeyed the law perfectly so that he would die in our place. Notice also in the story that the people's joy in this new law that led to their protection, that joy came before chapter 9 ever occurred, before they overtook their enemies. It came before total victory occurred. Chapter 8, they celebrate at the new law being written. Chapter 9 is when that victory actually takes place. We live in that same land between 8 and 9 right now. We know that in Christ, we have victory. But the end times have not taken place yet, and, and, the, and the enemy is still prowling around like a roaring lion. And yet, we can celebrate long before chapter 9 takes place. We can celebrate that victory is ours in Christ. Victory is ours because of the cross and the resurrection. 
The King of Kings has assured us total victory in the end over sin and death and the devil. And so even before that day comes, we can rejoice. We can rejoice because God is faithful to finish what He has begun. That's one reason when we celebrate communion, we were, when we remember communion, we remember this victory that we have in Christ, victory over our own sin. The power of sin has no hold on us anymore. The worship team wants to come back up now. So the good news of Jesus leads to this great reversal in the life of the Christ follower. Where once we were dead in our sin, now through faith in Christ we've been made alive. Where once we were objects of wrath and under the law, God has come in the form of Jesus, the Son, to fulfill that law perfectly. And so that by the mercy and grace of God, we might receive salvation. Where once we were lost, we've been found. Where once we were guilty, now we've been forgiven. Where once we were uh, feeling shame, now we're free. Where once we were unrighteous, we are clothed in His righteousness. Where once we were unholy because of, cro- because of the cross, because of Christ, we are now holy in His sight. Where once we were proud, we are now pursuing humility in Christ. Where once we were living for ourselves, now we're going to live for Him. Where once we were hopeless, now we have a living hope because of the resurrection of, cro- of, the, of the cross. Where once death was final, now we have victory over death. Where once we were destined for eternal separation, now we've been destined for eternal communion and rest and joy in the presence of our Father. Faith in Christ leads to this great reversal, and I pray that it would lead us to a great worship of our God, not just in this moment, but as a way of life. That this week we'd be reminded of the great reversals that God has done in us and God is doing in us. And that would not lead us to pride, but it would lead us to humility and exalting God and His work in our lives. So let's stand up and let's worship and let's sing. Faithful for
So apart from Christ, there's separation. Apart from Christ, there is a condemnation. But a reversal happens through faith in Christ. And Romans 8 speaks to this. If God is for us, then who can be against us? Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall trouble or hardship or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? So once there was separation, but now through faith in Christ, there is no separation and nothing can separate us. Knowing all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am convinced that neither death nor life, neither angels nor demons, neither the present nor the future, nor any powers, neither height nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Father God, thank you for that in Christ you have caused a great reversal to occur in our lives. That once we were uh, uh, separated, once we were under judgment, once we were under condemnation. But by grace and through faith and through Christ alone, Lord, now there's no condemnation. Now there's no separation. Thank you for your unending love. I pray that this week we would worship you and exalt you in our lives. That we'd be reminded as we look at our past, the, the reversal that has taken place in our lives, and we'd be continued, encouraged to continue in a way that loves you supremely above all else and loves others and goes and makes disciples. Father, thank you for your love for us, and thank you that nothing can separate us from that love. In Jesus' name, amen. Meet somebody new before you leave. God bless. Have a great week. And shake before you, the demons running free at the mansion of.